Well, I'm so glad that you joined us today. Uh, little did we know that one of the blessings of this, this crazy season that we're coming out of was that not only would people from all over the East Bay be able to join us, but people from all over the world would join Cornerstone. So wherever you are, uh, open your Bible to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Uh, 2 Corinthians 3.2 is the portion of a letter from the Apostle Paul written to the believers at Corinth, which is in modern-day Greece. In this part of the letter, Paul is going to tell them that they, too, are like letters, living letters. All right, let's read it together, starting with verse 2 of chapter 3. Paul writes, You yourselves are our letter." written on our hearts, known and read by everyone. You show that you are a letter from Christ, the result of our ministry, written not with ink, but with the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. All right, let's pray. Holy Spirit, please teach us today. Open this letter up to us. Apply it to us as you did to the original readers. Show each of us something old that then becomes new as you reveal to us what it means and and how we could apply it to our understanding of our mission. And all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Go ahead. All right, so the other day, uh, Brenda was sorting out our garage, and she came across an old box of letters. There were some great letters in there. You remember letters? Back before email, back before Facebook or texting, back when a long-distance phone call cost more than a local call, we mailed letters to our loved ones. It was really cool to go to your mailbox and see that along with the junk mail and bills, someone had written you a personal letter. You know, as I think about that, I remember Fridays at college. Uh, My parents were in Colorado. I was out here in Santa Cruz, California, where after lunch, we would walk to the little post office where each student had a P.O. box. I would spin the combination of box 122 every Friday, and like clockwork, there would be a letter written by my mom with all the details from back home, and a, a $20 bill would usually be in there. Now, the money was great, but even after it was spent, I was still reading that letter a few more times as my mom kept me connected with home. You know, handwritten letters were how human beings communicated for thousands of years. Since 500 B.C., people have sent each other letters. And one of the most famous Christian letter writers is the Apostle Paul, who traveled thousands of miles to plant churches. He would arrive, he would preach, he would baptize new converts, organize them into a local church, and then leave elders in place when he moved on. But then, even after he had moved on, he kept coaching them in personal letters sent to groups and to individuals. And fortunately for us, we still possess 13 of these epistles. Now, the average letter in the Roman world back then was like 100 words, maybe 200. Uh, It would fill one papyrus page. Uh, It looked like this. 
But Paul's letters, on average, were 10 times that length. Pages bound together into a small book like this one. Paul's longest letter, the one to the Romans, is over 7,000 words long. Uh, It would have taken up at least 35 pages. Now, since it was difficult to write on papyrus, authors usually uh, dictated their letters to a trained scribe. Then, at the end of the letter, the author would take the quill from the scribe, dip it in the inkwell, and scratch out a a short signature, maybe even a little sentence, to prove its authenticity. We see this in several of Paul's letters, like how he wraps up his second letter to the believers at Thessalonica. I, Paul, he writes, I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand, which is the distinguishing mark in all my letters. This is how I write, he says. Well, imagine receiving a letter from the great Apostle Paul. He'd been in your town, uh, but he hadn't been there for several years. But then news would circulate all over town that a letter had arrived. The church would gather, and someone would quiet the group and begin to read biblical instruction and direction from Paul specific to their fellowship. Now, in that first reading, even the longest letters would be read in one setting. But then in later gatherings, it was more like how we do it, where we take a small section and and pick it apart and discuss uh, the instructions there at length. Now, in today's text, Paul uses the letter itself as his metaphor. I wrote you this letter, he said, but you also are a letter, a letter Christ has mailed to Corinth, a letter written not with ink on parchment, but written on your hearts. Okay, we've just got to sit with that. We've got to think about that. If what Paul is saying is true for the Corinthians, it would be true for us as well. That Christ himself has written a message on our hearts so that when people get to know us, they begin to hear what Christ wants to say to them. This is so great. That the, to think that the words, uh, my words, uh, that, uh, that, that, that my actions uh, that come from my heart are not just from my heart, but they are also Jesus' message to you, Jesus' message to anyone I get to know. Imagine being a letter Christ has written to someone else. You know, someone once said, you may be the only Jesus someone will ever meet. I think that thought is intimidating uh, because I can't imagine uh, that what I am always saying or always doing is what Jesus would necessarily say or do. But then at other times when we are passionately pursuing him, our daily lives tell his story. A story where God gave up so much just to love us, where Christ came and revealed God's heart. And then he changed us and he he began writing his, his love on the parchment of our hearts. What he has written on our hearts is unlike any other letter because his story is unlike any other story. You know, it's like when you read a good book, uh, you just cannot put it down. You keep reading, but then you don't want it to end. That's the kind of living letters we can become for Jesus, where he redeems us, he restores us, he saves us, he loves us, he changes us. And then we become part of his story as he writes a love letter 
on our hearts. Now, it's a letter that's originally written to, to us, but then, uh, but then it becomes part of what uh, he once communicated through us to others. As we open up and let people see, uh, let people hear, uh, let people experience Christ communicating to them through us. What an honor to become a letter from Jesus to someone else. You know, I've always thought of, of, of the Bible as the world's greatest love letter. A letter from God in both the Old Testament and the New where God pours out his love for human beings. In passages like Jeremiah 31, verse 3, where God says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. I have drawn you with unfailing kindness. An everlasting, eternal kind of love. A love that cannot be taken away. Uh, when Paul writes to the Christ followers in Rome, he says, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love. A love revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. And now Paul writes to say that once we are loved like that by God, once he writes that kind of love in our hearts, we can let others read it. People who haven't even read the Bible read us as if we are God's message God's love letter to them. You know, I think sometimes in the past we've missed it when we've taught you how to, uh, how to witness, how to share your faith, as if your Christian story is some kind of sales pitch. I think Paul would agree with St. Francis or whoever it was who, who said, preach the gospel at all times and if necessary, use words. Like Jesus said, you are the light. So don't hide that light. Let it shine. Now Paul says, you are Christ's letter to anyone close enough to read your heart. And you know, when I think of Jesus writing on our hearts, I imagine that he writes in permanent ink. Expertly, expertly, there's the word, tattooing our hearts with words and images for others to read. When you get a tattoo, it's important that the artist you pick to stain your body forever knows what they're doing. I mean, there are some terrible tattoo artists out there. Like whoever did this tattoo. <laughs> or this one. Yeah. What about this one? <laughs> Look at this one. But then on the other hand, there are some amazing tattoos. I don't have any tattoos, but all my children do, and so do many of you. And some of you have some beautiful ink, words and images that tell us all something you want us to know. And when you get a good tattoo, you show it off. You, you, you love to talk about it to anyone who asks. Well, Jesus is the best tattoo artist to walk the planet. We can be proud of how he has permanently marked us and what he has written on our hearts in permanent ink is available to be shared with anyone who gets to know us. Hmm. Some of you know that God himself has a tattoo. It's on his hands. He tells us this in the prophecy of Isaiah where he says, I have inscribed your name on the palm of my hands. Hmm. To think that my name is on God's hands. Every time God does something, he, he 
thinks of me. That's humbling, but it's wonderful. Okay, one more thought before we move on. Paul says to the Corinthian church, you yourselves are our letter, the result of our ministry. Listen to what he's saying to them. You are a letter written by Jesus to be communicated to the world, but I also contributed to that story. I'm hundreds of miles from you now, but if someone reads your heart, they're reading my heart. This can be so encouraging to us who have been discipling people for years or those who have parented children who are now out on their own. Those folks are out there now communicating what Jesus and you wrote on their hearts. You know, as I was preparing the sermon, it was just yesterday when I remembered uh, Brother Casey, the Pueblo Christian Center in Colorado, a man who wrote on my heart. I found out that years before I met him, he had been dismissed from pastoring after his wife divorced him because he was fighting bone cancer and she didn't want to look at his face anymore, which had been severely disfigured by surgery. His eyes always watered from the damaged tear glands. When he spoke, his right cheek would, would puff out because his cheekbones were gone. George Casey was extremely poor, depending on the charity of others, and living in an elderly woman's one-car garage. But as a boy, I was drawn to him. There was something about him that didn't uh, repel me. He wasn't, he was not good to look at, but he, his soul, he was so gentle, so just a wonderful Christian. Uh, I remember Saturdays when I would go to his place to listen to a ball game on his small Sony transistor radio while he repaired small appliances on his workbench. Uh, I would talk about the Bible with a man who held doctorate degrees in biblical languages. I never heard Brother Casey express bitterness about all the bad things that had happened to him or complain that he was literally living alone in a garage. He didn't wallow in past hurts. He wanted to talk about Jesus. And when he did, his eyes would shine. So I think George Casey wrote some lines in the letter written on my heart that now even you're able to read. Another thing, I, last week I, I spent some time with Steve Ingold and his, uh, his dad, Ken Ingold. Uh, I hadn't spent a lot of time with Ken, but, but I felt like I knew him well because I know his son well. And sure enough, now that I've spent several days with Ken, I can tell you that by knowing Steve, I know Ken. So before we move on, I want to challenge you to do this. Pause now to think about whoever it is that you are discipling who is looking up to you right now. Tell us about them in the chat. Perhaps you're just thinking of your children uh, uh, that are still living in your house. Or uh, maybe there's someone who regularly comes around, and uh, like I did with Brother Casey. Uh, maybe you have neighbors who always stop to chat. You have friends who have complimented your children or fellow employees who obviously admire your work ethic or, or your values. Think about them right now and think specifically how you are influencing them with gospel. Ask yourself what you hope it is that you are writing on their heart. 
All right, let's pick up the, the text halfway through verse 5, where Paul writes, Our competence uh, to influence each other comes from God. He has made us competent as ministers of a new covenant. Think of that. Ministers of a new covenant. That's us. Now, at Cornerstone, we often mention the old and the new covenants. But it's possible that some of you joining us today weren't around in January in 2020 when we unpacked the old and the new covenants. If that's you, you're going to want to jump on the YouTube channel. Cornerstone has a channel on YouTube, and you're going to watch the series titled, What Does Love Require? Now, in a nutshell, the Old Testament uh, contains several covenants God made with individuals and groups. The one most commonly referred to as the Old Covenant is the one God made with Israel in the wilderness where at Mount Sinai he laid out the laws for the new nation. Ten foundational commandments written on tablets of stone and then many more rules and regulations regarding varying, varying subjects such as Sabbath or parenting or marriage or dietary restrictions to name a few. God's covenant with Israel became the standard he used to either bless or punish his people for over 1,200 years until Christ came. Then, when Christ came, he established a new covenant, one that included you and me. On the night of his arrest, uh, Christ passed the Passover bread and the cup saying, this cup is the new covenant established by my death. And this is why the New Testament is called the New Testament. The word testament means covenant, and this new covenant is the one God has made with us, his church. That's why we read the New Testament with a different lens than how we read the Old Testament. The Old Covenant was made with Israel and not with us. And it's a good thing not to be bound by the Old Covenant because it was conditional to and relying upon human behavior. Obey it, you'll be blessed. Rebel, and you'll be punished in this life. The new covenant is a better one for us because it's unconditional with love and grace offered to the rebellious and sinful until they breathe their final breath. The new covenant is anchored in Christ's completed work on the cross. Just believe in him and you will be saved, like Paul told the jailer in Philippi. And where the old covenant is conditional to Israel obeying the Ten Commands, plus many more rules, the new covenant leaves us with only two commands— that we love God with all of our, our what? Say it with me. Heart, soul, mind, and strength. We love God with everything we are, everything we have. And the second command, we love our neighbor as ourselves. We love our neighbor as much as we love ourselves. We love our neighbor as we are loving ourselves. And that makes the new covenant better because the old, old covenant uh, is also based on uh, these never-ending animal sacrifices. Whereas our covenant, the new covenant, is based upon the once and for all death of Christ, the perfect Lamb of God who takes away our sin. So the new covenant is not the uh, new and improved old covenant. It's called the new covenant because when Jesus came, he brought something completely new. And we who have received Christ as Savior and Lord, we know that his sacrifice, not our sacrifice, is what saves us. I thank God for that. Now, unfortunately, this is not what many modern Christians have been taught. They've been taught that the entire Bible, the Word of God, both Old and New Testaments, is to be read the same. The entire Bible is to be obeyed the same. 
that both the Old Testament and New Testament contain all the rules that we must live by, that the laws laid down in the Old Testament hold equal authority with Christ's command. Now, what's never said but always implied is that Christ's sacrifices and Christ's simplification of the rules are great, but they're not enough. The Old Testament rules are still in play, as are the Old Testament consequences. Well, that's not the case. When we accept Christ's teaching, when we believe on all that happened as his death and resurrection, we enter into a new unconditional covenant with God through Jesus. Like the writer of the New Testament book that we call Hebrews says in chapter 7, Jesus has become the guarantee of a better covenant. Now he goes on in chapter 8 to say that the ministry Jesus has received is as superior to the old, founded on better promises. For if there had been nothing wrong with the first covenant, then a new one would not have been offered. Then the writer of Hebrews reminds his Jewish readers that years back God had promised them this new covenant to replace the old. And he quotes Jeremiah, who speaks for God, saying, The time is coming when I will make a new covenant with Israel. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers, because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them. I will write my words, God says, on their hearts. He finishes this up by saying, by calling this new covenant new, God has made the first one obsolete. All right, did you read that? The old covenant found in the Old Testament is obsolete. It does not apply to us. So don't hold the Old Testament, Old Covenant as having equal weight with the New Testament, New Covenant. Don't take an Old Covenant God made with Israel before he sent Christ as your agreement with God. You don't want that. And God doesn't expect that from you. Don't lay the burden of a bunch of obsolete rules and regulations on yourself and don't lay them on anyone else. And don't make up any new ones. Our faith is so much richer than a list of do's and don'ts. Jesus changed all that. All right, let's keep reading. Uh, verse 7, I think I lost my place here, so I'll have to find it. 2 Corinthians 3, verse 7. Now, if the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, came with glory so that the Israelites could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of its glory, transitory though it was, will not the ministry of the Spirit be even more glorious? If the ministry that brought condemnation was glorious, how much more glorious is the ministry that brings righteousness? For what was glorious has no glory now in comparison with the surpassing glory. And if what was transitory came with glory, how much greater is the glory of that which lasts? Therefore, since we have such hope, we are very bold. We are not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face to prevent the Israelites from seeing the end of what was passing away. All right, we're going to stop there because you're saying, what, what is he talking about? What is the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone? What is the ministry that condemns people as compared to the ministry that brings righteousness? Well, the ministry that brought death, which was engraved in letters on stone, could only be one thing. Words engraved on stone. What's Paul talking about? There's only one place in the Bible where words are engraved on stone. What is that? 
Do you know? Okay, right. If you said the Ten Commandments, give yourself a pat on the back. Uh, which, as amazing as they were, they are impossible to keep. I mean, you may have never murdered someone, but we have all misused God's name. And who among us hasn't disrespected our parents or coveted our neighbor's house while we were mowing our backyard on Sabbath? The old, the, the, the old covenant commands were commands, and disobedience was met with harsh punishment. And it wasn't like God was grading on the curve back then. It was pass-fail. And the only way you passed was with a perfect score. The very best you could do after stumbling was to offer expensive animal sacrifices and promising, uh, promise to do better next time. At best, even the most obedient old covenant observer who was absolved of the altar sinned not too long after that, only to be required to repeat the process in a never-ending sin, repentance, Sacrifice cycle. And what is this? Uh, he writes about Moses and his, his veil that hung over his face to keep the Israelites from seeing that his face had faded. Well, the answer to that question is found in Exodus 34, uh, starting in verse 29, where when Moses came down from Mount Sinai after meeting with God, his face was literally glowing, so much so that everyone was afraid of him. So he put a veil over his face. Then whenever he entered the Lord's presence in the tent of the meeting, he removed the veil until he came, he, he came out when his face was one, once again lit up and he would cover it again. But then, as Paul explains in this letter, Moses kept putting the veil on long after the glow had faded. He didn't want people to see that his face had faded, that he couldn't keep that glow glowing. Maybe he kept wearing the veil uh, after he didn't need it because he didn't want to discourage all his followers. I mean, he was by far the one closest to God, and if Moses can't keep up the glow, then who could? But maybe Moses was like us, where uh, after a mountaintop experience, we come back from camp so fired up, we're going to shine every day for God from now on. But then life kicks back in, and the glow fades. But friends, it's supposed to fade. It wouldn't be good for us to always have this holy glow. That would be intimidating to everyone around us. If that were true, if, if that was true, we would also become the attraction instead of Jesus being the attraction. No, he's the sun. We're only the moon created to reflect light. Just reflect the Lord's glory. It's not about you, it's about Jesus. Just reflect Jesus and that will be enough. Just be the cracked, flawed mirror that you really are, a mirror Christ has washed clean. This is what will give people reading your story some hope. Hope that they too could reflect Jesus too. I don't think anyone was ever encouraged when I told them the one or two times that I was an amazing Christian and did something really wonderful. They didn't learn anything from that. It was only when I opened up and let them see the real me, the cracked, flawed mirror that I really am. All right, one more thought about this veil over Moses' face, because when the original Jewish readers heard the word veil, they would be reminded of the veil in the temple. You've probably heard about this, this thick curtain keeping all but the selected priests out of God's holy presence, a curtain God told them to hang to protect sinful people from his holy, potent presence. But do you remember what happened to that thick curtain? 
in the temple on the Friday afternoon as Christ breathed his last just outside of town on Calvary's cross. Moses tells us this, uh, not Moses, uh, Matthew, starts with an M, tells us this in chapter 27. He says, when Jesus had cried out in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Why did that happen? Because of what Jesus had just done. The curtain was no longer needed. The temple veil was a barrier between God and us, and this was a symbol of the old covenant Jesus was replacing with a new covenant. His death made that barrier between God and us unnecessary. Uh, this veil that protected sinful people from the possible uh, uh, fatal presence of the holy God could now be done away with. Because of what Christ had finished on the cross, God tore the veil in two from top to bottom, giving anyone who accepted the sacrifice Christ had just made complete access into God's holy presence. So that, as Paul writes in verse 16 of today's text, whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. Praise God. Praise God. There's nothing now keeping us out of God's holy presence. Jesus has destroyed any barrier that was once between us and God. The barrier of our shame, the barrier of our fear of God, the barrier of how we've kept our distance from God for whatever reason. I wonder as we read Paul, if we are each reminded of a veil that once kept us from God's presence. What has kept you from sweet face-to-face interaction with your Father God? I wonder if over the years you've allowed what was once a beautiful face-to-face relationship with God to become cloudy and veiled. I know that today Jesus could once again tear that veil in two and restore the joy of your salvation uh, where you with an unveiled face can look fearlessly into Jesus' eyes. I'm also certain there are people joining us today who have never experienced this. You have never experienced the tearing down of the barrier between you and God. Please believe me when I say that the kingdom of God has come in Jesus. Our shame, our sin, our sense of unworthiness are all like that thick curtain torn in two when Jesus died. And nothing can separate us from God's love. Our sin, whatever form it has taken over the years, does not keep God away. Your view of yourself will not keep God away. The veil is torn. It's time for you to to agree with God. It's time for you to believe. It's time for you to say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. Why don't you say that with me? Yes, I want to follow Jesus. Say it again. That's right. And it's also time for all of us to take the veils off that keeps us from knowing each other. Any fake persona we put forward to keep people from seeing us for who we are, that veil along with any veil that we might have been wearing to hide our true self has got to go. You know, when Moses continued to mask his face, he was was hiding something embarrassing like we do sometimes. But if Paul were with us today, he would say, Don't wear a veil to hide your true self. Take off the mask 
and be real. Many of us were covering our faces long before the pandemic. Many of us were afraid to allow people to to know us. My advice to you, sit in God's presence every morning this week and then walk out of your front door reflecting Jesus and people will like what they see. Let them see the real you. Let them read what Christ and other amazing people have written on your heart. All right, that's all the time we have. Let's wrap up in verse 17 where Paul says, The Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we who with unveiled faces all reflect the Lord's glory are being transformed into his likeness with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, made his light shine in our hearts to give, give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Let me pray for you now. Father, what a powerful word this has been. How humbling it has been to try to take the words of Paul, the words of Jeremiah, the words of the writer of Hebrews, God's words, and communicate them in my own flawed fashion. And yet, Lord, you have shown me that, uh, that, that we are all flawed. We are all like a cracked mirror reflecting your glory. Lord, I pray for anyone now who feels far from you, that this message would be taken to heart and they would open back up to you and maybe repenting of sin or maybe uh, repenting of just not spending time with you. And Lord, that you would enter into that special place and that you would, Lord, have just sweet communion with all of us and that you would write your love letter on our hearts to be shared with others around us. And this is our mission to share the love of Christ with everyone we meet. Go with us now with the love of Christ filling us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.